Hello, I'm Lucy Hobbs and I'm the chair of the AQR. For those who don't know us, this stands for the Association of Qualitative Research. One of our aims here at the AQR is to expand perspectives and deliver thought-provoking opinion pieces that resonate with our whole membership base and hopefully beyond SWAL. We are therefore absolutely delighted to be launching our shiny brand new podcast series that is called Qualversations. We're going to kick off our podcast with stories from ordinary women who have made truly extraordinary things happen. In the first few episodes of Qualversations, AQR board member Debbie Newbold is going to be interviewing inspiring women who have broken through the proverbial glass ceiling and who are from outside of our immediate world of research. So what can we learn from these women and what can we learn from their experiences? It really is shocking to think that only 23% of business leaders in the world of research are women. This, of course, needs to change. Debbie and her guests will be discussing women and leadership and the journeys that they have been on to get to where they are today. The aim of our podcast series is to inspire you, to entertain and hopefully to expand our listeners' minds. We do hope you enjoy Qualversations. I'd like to start our podcast by introducing Polly McMaster. Polly is the chief exec of The Fold, a highly successful clothing brand, and this year has dressed the Manchester City women's football team, the Prime Minister's wife and Tess Daly. Her ambition is to empower women through helping them achieve their ambitions. She wants us to love our workwear as much as any other part of our wardrobe. Let's meet her and hear about her journey and her thoughts on leadership. So Polly, let's start off with you telling us a little bit more about your brand, The Fold. Fantastic. Um, I'm delighted to tell you a bit about the brand The Fold, which I started just over 10 years ago now. So the whole premise of The Fold was to create a an inspiring brand for working women, one that women could feel sort of empowered by, that would help them champion their ambitions and dress them fundamentally for work in a more stylish and more confident way. And I guess it really came about because when I first started work after university, I was really excited about the whole idea of getting dressed up for work, heading off. Um, I think I had a, a kind of vision of sashaying into an office in a, in a fancy suit. And when I went shopping to try and find such a suit, I was really sort of woefully disappointed about what options there were available. They were either quite masculine or quite frumpy, quite expensive or too cheap. And it really shocked me because I thought, oh, that's interesting. You know, here I am with with my uh, peers heading off for our first jobs, um, and it just felt like the the the, the market for professional women um, seemed a bit underserved. So I think that sat with me for a while, and it was really that that first sort of nugget of feeling uh, that was the inspiration behind eventually coming to to start up the brand. Brilliant, and we're going to talk a little bit in a minute about your journey into the fold. Um, because as you said, you've been heading up the brand for 10 years, but previously you were in a very male-dominated environment. And um, our podcast is all around women in leadership. And I'm really interested in uh, you talking to us a little bit about 
working in that type of environment, what did that teach you about the importance of feeling good? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I think certainly through my education and going into the world of work, I'd never really considered that I wouldn't have the same opportunities as men. So I don't remember ever feeling that I was going to be held back by being a woman. But I remember being quite surprised how few women there were. So for example, in my first job, we had a new peer group when we joined uh, the the industry or the, the role that I was doing. And there were four women and 20 men in my year group. So that already is a very, an entry level, a very stark difference between the two. And then as we looked up to the more senior levels, the number of women just fell away increasingly. So if there were only four to start with, it doesn't take a lot to imagine that by the time you got up to the senior levels, there weren't any. So that was definitely quite shocking and and something that I sort of took note of. On the other hand, there was also the situation that because there were only four women in my year group, most of the senior people or most of the people in, in the organization did know who we were because we stood out in a way more because there were fewer of us, so we were more identifiable. And I guess in some senses, I felt that that could be used um, to an advantage. So obviously, there's one way of looking at it to go, well, you're sort of standing out. Is that a good thing? But I think if you're doing a good job and you're working hard then and you're memorable for whatever reason, then I suppose it also could be potentially used as a source of empowerment, depending on on the situation. So I think as I went through, it was something that sort of started to become a bit noticeable. I think where I felt it particularly more noticeable was when I moved into private equity, there were even fewer women. And one of the things that I started to realize was therefore, if I was going to meet other women in the industry, it was going to be about networking with women in different organizations because there just weren't that many in my own. And things had started to crop up at that stage. So bear in mind, this was about, so let's say, 16, 17 years ago. There started to be these women's networks where you could go and meet other people in private equity, for example. But it was particularly noticeable that you almost needed that because otherwise you didn't have a female peer group. And, and I thought that, again, that was something that sort of struck, struck me was that, you know, in terms of, for example, thinking about uh, the idea of this brand, how many places are there where professional women at a certain level can really build that type of community with each other? And I think it's really changed over, over the years. But at that time, it was a very nascent concept. Yeah, I think that's really fascinating. And I think there is something about uh, men being with men and women being with women. And it is actually in leadership positions quite difficult to find your peer group as a woman. No, absolutely. And and hence really having to sort of look outside for it because there, there just wasn't an internal female peer group to be, you know, at all really. I mean, I think that that certainly in terms of relationships with people around the office and building a peer group, I didn't necessarily find that a problem because there were... Uh, there was a you know a good spirit of of collaboration and so on, but you know I was relatively fortunate in that. That's certainly not the experience that I've heard you know many other people have in in different industries where they can be quite isolated. You know you still hear relatively dreadful stories about you know offhand comments and things that people say or people being held back and so on. So I think the other thing though about it is just a lack of role modelling. So even if I was sort of relatively comfortable in my peer group, whether they were men or women. I suppose it was also quite noticeable to me that 
it was harder to look up and go, oh, you know, how inspiring. There are those 10 women in leadership positions in the company. I could be like that one day because they just they just didn't exist. So it was interesting when you did come across them, they really stood out and and often had had to sort of disproportionately sacrifice things or be particularly strong-willed in order to get to those positions of leadership because at that point in time, it was more rare. Again, I think that is changing, but it's it's definitely taking some time. Let's go back a little bit, Polly, if that's okay. Your route into fashion isn't an obvious one. I don't think there's very many virologists who are also fashion <laughs> entrepreneurs. Uh, so take me through that a little bit. Like That is very much career kaleidoscoping, isn't it? Um, to the nth degree, I would say. It definitely is. So it's interesting to me because I think I find it less odd than it looks on paper, and I'll explain why, really. I suppose if I go back way back to school, I'm probably someone who the British education system is not, frankly, particularly well suited to because I've always been a bit of a generalist and quite sort of broadly skilled as opposed to clearly being sort of amazing um, at one particular thing and dreadful at another. So I always found that at school it was quite difficult as you had to narrow and narrow and narrow your choices going you know, up through GCSEs and, and A-levels and so on. And I found it very difficult to, for example, give up my creative subjects like art and, and just do um, maths and sciences. So in the end at that time, I ended up sort of trying to do as much as I could of everything. So I did art A-level and then I did chemistry and, you know, maths and biology and things. But again, even that was a sort of relatively unusual mix. But I sort of stuck to my guns and used my uh, interest in more aesthetic and creative arts, maybe more as a hobby then as well. So I was super obsessed by fashion. I mean, I, you know, really obsessed is probably the right word from a very young age, very aware of different brands, very aware of the industry. I was, you know, had cut out pictures of every single supermodel on the wall and Karl Lagerfeld and all of this. And this was in the sort of 90s. So really super into it. Did dressmaking classes after school, learned to make my own clothes because my mum sort of helped me buy the, the patterns and the fabric to make my own clothes rather than give me money to, you know, go and buy buy something. So that was a sort of early introduction into it. But ultimately, I went to university, I had to make a choice. And it was a really genuinely hard choice because I really didn't want to give up that creative side, but I was pretty good at science and I really liked it and was also really interested in it. So I ended up studying uh, natural sciences at Cambridge, and then I went on to do a PhD in virology, so literally sort of molecular biology and the study of, of viruses. I worked on a pretty ridiculous virus actually when you uh, if you, it's a sort of embarrassing to say really it's a effectively a mouse herpes virus which I had fitted up studying for three years which is very obscure anyway years later it looks quite funny to have gone from uh, virology and studying that to then get into fashion but the in-between steps were sort of you know doing that PhD and then transferring into kind of biotech and healthcare consulting then going into uh, sort of biotech and, and healthcare investing. And then I went to business school and it was at that stage that I was sort of able to pick back up again, I suppose, those early interests and passions. And it all kind of collided together because I guess I'd learned 
when I was in consulting and private equity, what I was learning about was business, learning about the skills, the sort of the the structure of it, the you know how do you read a a P and L, how do you understand accounts, how do you scale things, what what does commercial analysis mean? And it's actually quite similar to science in a sense because really it's just problem solving, analytical thinking, just being applied in a different way. So while I was learning all of these and then noticing about these women in business and thinking about the networks and also thinking about my passion for clothes. And I suppose that was really my light bulb moment was sort of bringing all of those things together and just thinking, this is something I, I really feel strongly about is that um, I love I love fashion and, and the power of fashion, the power of clothes to to build your confidence. The, the options out there for working women are terrible. I love working women in the sense of bringing this community together and I like all these analytical aspects of, of business. So actually sort of running a business in that field and creating that brand was really sort of like the perfect moment to bring all of those things together. Incredible. Thanks, Polly. On your website, the Folds website, you talk about standing out for the right reasons. When I read that, that for me, it was a big claim and an amazing claim, but it hints at a little bit of a backstory. Can you share your thoughts on that claim and why it's on your website? Absolutely. It's it's really interesting because I think anecdotally, back to those ideas of why I started the brand and thinking that, you know, when you go to work, what you really need is to feel confident in yourself. Because if you're in a really important meeting and something is on your mind, maybe it's something else that has happened in your life. Or maybe, even though it sounds a bit superficial, you got up that morning, you put something on and you just don't feel good. All of those things are a distraction and it doesn't matter how big or small it is, it, it sort of eats away at you. And what you really want is the complete opposite. You want to get up for something important. You want to feel on top of your game. You want to feel organized. You want to feel put together and really just that you're putting your your best foot forward. And I think that was a sort of anecdotal feeling. It was one that had been, you know, talked a lot about while I was setting the business up and also with customers as I would meet them. But what we wanted to do as a as a brand, I suppose, was also go, well, is there a way that we could substantiate that and make it less anecdotal? So over the past few years, we have conducted quite a few quite big surveys with our customer base, not just the customers, but also our broader community. And I think the first survey that we did was called kind of Workwear Matters. And we surveyed about 5,000 women. And really the kind of questions that we were asking was, you know, do you actually think that what you wear can have an impact? How you show up to work, can that have an impact? How do you, what are your tools to build your confidence at work to have that kind of impact? When has it gone wrong? When have you been called out for the wrong things? And because it was anonymous as well, we asked people quite kind of challenging questions about whether they feel judged by other people, whether they in fact judge other people, whether they have noticed that the way that people show up to work and how they present their personal brand, is that something that they have observed has actually made an impact in people's careers? And whether we like it or not, the you know the answers came back very clearly that actually some of those things can impact your career it can impact how people see you and i'll just give one example of 
what I would call kind of the impact of micro decisions about how that how that could kind of roll up and have that effect. So if you're a, a junior person in a team and you, let's say you're, the impact that you're having is perhaps that you look a bit scruffy, that, you know, you've taken the casual dress code to the extreme and maybe look like you've just kind of, I don't know, cycled across town or, or don't look particularly sort of pulled together. There might be, your, your boss might come over and say, oh, we've had a last minute meeting come in and they're looking for someone to join them to take to that meeting. If two people have absolutely equivalent skills, but one of them is looking absolutely prepared, ready to go, you know, they're, they're sort of organized, they're looking like they're on top of their game. Whether we like it or not, that's going to be the person who's selected to go to that meeting. And the person who shows up looking less well-prepared is going to be the one who's left behind. And it doesn't take a huge amount of steps for that to roll up to the person who was selected to go to the meeting has then by 10 times that that's happened, has had more experience in meetings, has shadowed that person in meetings more, has gained more experience, has potentially presented more. And suddenly you can see that there's these tiny little things that sound like ridiculous and they sound superficial, but they can roll up into you know, bigger splits and bigger, you know, impact on your career journey. So I guess it's just all of these, all of these things that sound anecdotal, but when you actually boil it down, you know, standing out for the right reasons, looking like you mean business because you've shown that you're prepared and that you're appropriate for whatever the the situation is going to, you know, present at a day of work, you know, could just put you in a in a better position. Uh, to be selected for that meeting or given that opportunity. Lovely, a really interesting little anecdote. Um, tell me, Polly, a little bit about, uh, in the intro, um, I have talked about the people you've dressed. I mean, it's quite phenomenal, really. Uh, everyone from uh, the Manchester City women's football team, the Prime Minister's wife, Tess Daly, Princess of Wales... Can you share with me, Polly, a little bit about the times when you paused and re have reflected on what you've achieved? Can you talk me through those private I made it moments? I'm not very good at that, actually. I probably should do it a bit more, but I think I'm probably always I'm either moving the goalposts or for some reason giving myself a bit of a hard time about, about something. So there are those moments, but sometimes it can be hard to take that little moment of, of perspective. So it's a good reminder, actually, to do that a bit more. I suppose the ones that probably stand out are early on the, the when the Princess of Wales wore the fold. It was very impactful. It was relatively early in, in the sort of story of the business. And I think... What was what made me feel so proud about it wasn't just the sort of the PR impact or, or the business impact, which were amazing, but really, I suppose it came down to when you've got women who are public figures or very senior in their organisation or they're leading a country or leading a, an organisation. You know, they've really strived to do that, and they've they've had to work hard. They have all sorts of things to consider in their lives. But they also have quite a lot of choices, I suppose, of, of how they show up. So seeing those women 
like the Princess of Wales, then choose to actively choose to wear something that we've designed and created is a real sort of accolade, I suppose. It's a real testimony to the quality of the product that we make, uh, to the team effort that's gone into it, all of the tiny, weeny little steps of effort that have gone in. And I think in that particular instance, it had been an absolutely grueling year in, I think it was 2015 that she, that she, that this particular instance happened. And just to give you a bit of an insight about like the, the true kind of roller coaster, although cliched as it sounds, that you go through, I think at the beginning of the year, we'd been really running out of cash. We were a very small business. You know, we probably had 10 people in the organization. Sales was sort of going okay, but it was just consuming cash because of course in in retail you have to make physical products so it just eats money it's it's terrifying and it was so hard every single sort of week and month who can i pay can i pay the team where am i going to raise the money from desperately trying to talk to new investors trying to find the best for the business getting rejected you know so many times having sort of just about getting over the line with things and then having things slip away. It was it was really, honestly, the, the intense stress. I mean, I wasn't eating, I wasn't sleeping. I was, you know, really the very physically affected by it as well. Um, I'd also had a few sort of personal things. People don't always share these things, but I think I'd had two miscarriages that year. I mean, it was just, you know, absolutely horrendous. And to have that moment off the back of that sort of the depths of despair and, you know, are we even going to survive? And then to have a moment like that, which was such a high, was was really profound. It was really, I suppose, that, you know, the two absolute polar opposite um, emotions. So, so that was very meaningful. I think the other time when I've really definitely taken a moment to reflect was when we were coming up for our 10-year anniversary last year. And it, it was an amazing time to sort of stop and, and think and I suppose one of the things was even just not taking for granted that the business was still there. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it had, it had grown and I'm really proud of our successes. And But, you know, you, you look at businesses in the volatile environment that we're in and amazing businesses um, have gone. And it's so sad. And even when consumers love them, it's it's just not a given that everything is always going to be okay. So fundamentally being able to look around and go, Oof, you know, we're still here, we march on, we've got a fantastic team, we're making a brilliant product, our customers are really proud of what we do. Um, yeah, that was a that was a really proud moment, really absolutely for sure a proud moment. Is there one woman who you've dressed that you're like, whoa, this is incredible? Oh, great question. I think I think there is there are so many really. Um I think it was a very proud moment when the Princess of Wales wore the brand, for sure. I I guess, though, in, in a way, maybe it's not even necessarily the, you know, the one sort of famous person or well-known person. I guess it's just the the feeling proud that what we set out to do, which was to provide this collection and this brand that women would feel a part of and that they would feel that they could go to when they really needed something for something really important to them. And knowing that they've 
that they've worked so hard to get where they are and it really matters to them and that they would choose us and that they would enjoy wearing those things and that we might in some tiny way, you know, have an impact on them just feeling, you know, how whatever percent more confident going into a really big interview or a really big presentation. I think it's almost all of those those little things together that almost makes me more proud because it's exactly what we hoped would happen and what I really believed was important in the brand. So I guess that almost makes me prouder, if that makes sense. Well, it does. You continue to champion women in business and you have uh, chatted a little bit about that to me uh, just, but tell me a little bit more about your Fold community. I'm really intrigued about that and why you thought that that was such an important thing to do alongside setting up a, a women's wear brand, a fashion brand. I think the community aspect of the fold comes back to that initial feeling of this group of incredible women who are achieving so much and they're often so multifaceted as well. If you think about all these incredible women that we all know who somehow are doing an incredible job, they've also got all this stuff going on at home, whether it be kids or partners or caring or you know, people who do all sorts of sports on top of everything else and run a charity. And it's just extraordinary what these women are achieving. And yet it almost felt like from a sort of, I don't know, consumer perspective or perhaps from a public eye perspective, you know, how many people can name more than 10 well-known business women and just sort of have it roll off the tongue or entrepreneurs or politicians or people that aren't, just famous celebrity. And so sort of, I guess my thought was, is there a way that we can shine a bit of a light on those women and make them feel special and feel noticed and feel that they are part of something because they they absolutely deserve to be and, and ought to be. And then I guess things like the Man City collaboration has been a a really fun way again of sort of broadening our community and it's quite fun because I suppose what it what it's recognizing is that there are so many different industries where women are still literally trying to compete to get to the same level playing field excuse the pun so it's really interesting looking at women's football as an example and obviously it's really on the ascendancy which is which is fantastic but it really wasn't so long ago that those professional teams were washing their own kit you know, they are training after work. It's not like they're earning, you know, enough money. It's getting a bit better now, but, you know, not necessarily enough to, um, you know, to have as your full-time job. And and yet we expect them to go off and be able to, you know, play at professional level and, and all of this. So I think the tides are really turning. And what we were trying to do was recognize them as professionals. You know, all of the men's Premier League teams, they go off to their big matches and they rock up in their designer suits and the same for all of the national teams. But these women's you know, the professional side, they, they don't, they didn't have that. So it was quite fun to do a bit of a pioneering partnership to sort of, again, show that they should be treated seriously. And they rock up at their key matches looking, you know, really sharp and, you know, intimidating the competition and, and just, yeah, showing that they're professionals and, and looking at, looking at women's involvement and women's kind of empowerment in a, in a slightly different way. You say the tides are turning. Yet, I read a very interesting statistic the other day that in 2022, so that's only last year, less than two pence in every pound of UK equity funding 
went to a female-founded business. What are your thoughts on that? It's absolutely depressing, and I'm not at all surprised. I think my experience of raising money for the business is is, is for sure one of the worst parts of, of the job. Mm. It's been stressful every single time I've done it. One of the things that's the just first most obvious, I suppose, um, experience that I've had is that very few of the people that I've met along that journey, both when I was working on the investment side, but also then as the entrepreneur trying to raise money, is just how few female investors there are. So in the end, I think that is one of the major sources of of the problem. If we want to get more investment into female-led businesses, I think you need more women investors to help open that up. So one of the things I've asked all of my guests on my podcast series is about what they would do to drive change for greater gender equality. It's a difficult one because it's a massive topic, Polly. But if you had to do one or two things, what would you say, this is what we need to be doing to encourage more women to take positions of leadership? I think it starts quite early on with a really positive approach to career development. Because fundamentally, to be a leader in any business, whether you're a man or a woman, you need to be sufficiently passionate about what you're doing to and, and ambitious about what you're doing to, to frankly take on the sacrifices that it requires to be a leader the responsibility, the sheer hard work. It's its not like that's just something that's the next necessarily sort of easy, easy or sort of straightforward next step. It really does require really wanting it, really having that drive, that ambition, that passion. And I think that comes from good choices early on to identify what you really are good at doing, what you really enjoy doing, finding a workplace and an environment that can best support it so that the sacrifices are a bit less. Because otherwise, I think it ultimately, there does come a point where you probably ask yourself, is it is it worth it? Are are all of the, you know, the the breaking the ceilings, difficult times, the the challenges, the responsibility, the risk, it can be all of those things can be can be very intense and it's it, it's not a given that that's for everyone and it's not always it's also not always fun and it's not always the right thing. So I think I suppose in the past there's just it, it's been maybe linear, it's it's been um, the, the choices, the way that society was set up, maybe it was just more, in a way, what was more expected made those things just straightforward for, for certain sort of groups to just naturally make their trajectory to the top. But maybe now it's it's far more open. There's more ability to invest in that early. So it's a really difficult question to answer because I, you know, I wish there was sort of one thing, but I just really think when I see people in my business doing well, taking on leadership positions, it really does come down to 
sort of setting them up, I think, for success early by recognizing their talents, supporting their talents, allowing them some flexibility in, in how they work. But ultimately, then also them having the drive, the ambition and the passion for what they're doing. Polly, it's been a pleasure to chat to you. And you really are a, an ordinary woman doing an extraordinary thing. So many thanks for sharing your story with our listeners, uh, sharing the highs, the lows. Um, it's been a pleasure to meet you, to chat to you. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's been a pleasure to take part. So from me, Debbie Newbold, thank you very much for listening to Qualversations. <laughs>